All right, well, let's get started. We're going to talk about the church and its role in a Christian society. And before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the, uh, the time off that we've had. And Father, I pray that as we get into our studies today, that we would uh, glorify you in this and that we would learn more about you and, and your world and how to live in it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So, church. Church is another institution of the three, with family, church, and state. And the church is another one of those institutions that assist men in the discipline of self-government. That's what all these institutions do. They assist us to govern ourselves, right, under the Lord. And so the church is God's specialized institution for the preaching of the gospel. That's the purpose of the church. Uh, It's God's institution for the maintenance of the, the sacraments, which are what? What are the sacraments? Uh, Two of them? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's right. So that's God's institution for the discipline of its members. These are the marks of a true church. The preaching of the gospel and uh, the sacraments. Baptism and Lord's Supper. And without these things, there can be no institutional church. Now, Protestants traditionally uh, tell the difference between the institutional church and the invisible church. There's, a, there's usually a distinction there, right? So uh, <clears throat> some people in the church are deceivers. Some people in the church, uh, ought, mostly they deceive themselves in the church. Um, and Jesus said in the parable of the sower that out of four, that four different plants that were sown into the ground... How many of those actually grew into maturity out of the four? One. Yeah, only one. Only one actually grew to maturity. The rest of them died out. But at the same time, when we look at the church, we see all the seeds in the ground, so to speak. Uh, we see all the seeds that were cast out, that were thrown out, okay? So, uh, so there are false teachers and false converts in church. So that's why there's a distinction between the invisible church and the institutional church. Everybody understand that? Yeah. Uh, Peter warned against false teachers uh, saying this. He said this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, There were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them. And bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. So, yeah, it's a dangerous indictment for those false teachers and those false converts who continue living a lie and and telling a lie. So the invisible church, what is the invisible church? When I say that, what comes to mind? Patty? Okay, so like the universal church, yeah. like the Catholic church, not the Roman Catholic church, the Catholic church, right? Yeah, oh, okay, all right. Well, what are some other ideas and things that come to mind when you hear invisible church, Lucas? Uh, the community. Community? Mm-hmm. Okay. Not the actual building itself. Okay, I understand. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, Benjamin, what about you? Uh, um, mind and what it thinks about God, like the, like the praising of in the mind. In the mind, Okay. Well, so, so what is the invisible church? Let's try to narrow down this definition a little bit. Well, the invisible church is the gathering of the faithful people who will be found entering heaven at death and will be found in the new heavens and the new earth. The invisible church is essentially the elect, right? So whenever we look around in the congregations of our church, uh, is every, do you think everyone sitting there is part of the invisible church? No. Nope. Probably not. I mean, we don't know. But, uh, you know, I'm sure you could think, well, maybe not. Maybe your parents could think of families and people who maybe, you know, three or four years ago were sitting in the midst of your congregation and now aren't. Now they're no longer there because they went apostate. That means they stopped following the Lord. 
Now, so that goes to prove that even then there were some people sitting there, at least at this point in time, they were not really uh, serving the Lord. And they were not, they don't, we can tell that they're, at this point, they're not a part of the invisible church, right? And so I think that's still going on. I think there's still people sitting in our pews that are a part of the church, the institutional church, right? They've been baptized. They take the Lord's Supper. Um, they're subject to all the covenantal commitments, uh, that being a church member entails, but they may not be a part of the invisible church. We hope everyone we see uh, is, but it may not be the case. So that's the invisible church, essentially the elect, those who really have put their faith in the Lord and uh, who are going to be in the new heavens and new earth one day. And it's this church which overlaps the institutional church, right? They overlap. We can't tell them apart. We don't know who's elect and who isn't, right? Uh, but uh, obviously uh, the invisible church is fewer in number than the institutional church. And uh, another way that we can describe the invisible church is what I like to call the historical church, which uh, describes all baptized professing Christians. All right, there's, that's one. And then there's the eschatological church uh, or the final day church, which, des- which describes the gathered saints on the day of judgment in the end. So the historical church, that describes everyone we see sitting in the pews with us who have, uh, who have been baptized and they profess Christ. Okay, that's one. That's the institutional church. The eschatological church. Why do you think I call it the eschatological church? Because that's the end. Because they're going to be there in the end. Right. And it's only the elect that are actually going to be there in the end on the day of judgment, um, you know, uh, going into heaven um, and inheriting the earth. Okay, so the institutional church, that's primarily what we're going to talk about today, because that's really the only thing that we can kind of see and be witness of. Right. So the institutional church is by necessity hierarchical. It's hierarchical. What does that mean? Hierarchical. It's a big word. When I say the institution or just hierarchy, has a hierarchy, what's that mean, Addie? Uh, that there's leaders and there's followers. There's leaders and followers. There's, there's um, bosses and then there's uh, people under their authority. Right. Um, and it's very much like the persons of the Trinity, right? That they're, they're separate functions in the church. Uh, doesn't mean like the Trinity is, is the son higher than, or is the father higher than the son in value? No, no, essentially not. But does the son submit to the father? Yes. Same thing with the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit over the son? No, not in a hierarchical sense uh, or not in a, um, in in an essential sense, but in a hierarchical sense, yes. So there's, there's separate functions within the Trinity, and the same thing in the church. You know, um, are you uh, lower in value than the pastor of the church to Christ? No, of course not. Uh, no, every, everybody um, is, has equal value to the Lord. The Lord loves all of us. Um, so, but everyone has a different function and a different uh, role to play. So there are rulers and there are subordinates. Just like we find in the family, you know, is the father uh, more important than the child? Is the father worth more than the child? No. Somebody has to be in charge. That's simply what this means. You know, in order for the family to function, somebody has to lead and others have to follow. And so same thing with the church. So there are are bishops, which is uh, the Greek word episkopos. That's where we get the word like episcopalian, episcopal church. That means uh, there are bishops and leaders. Uh, there are elders in the church, and bonus points if you know the Greek word for that. Elder? Anybody? Greek scholars? Uh, uh, presbyteros. Presbyterian. Presbytery. Uh, <laughs> presbyteros. Yeah, and so there's elders and there's bishops, and the, that's the hierarchy. And then there are deacons, and anybody know the Greek word for that one? Diakonos, right. Very good. Uh, and then there are uh, these. De- who are the deacons? What do the deacons do? Minister. They do. They serve. But they're assistants to the elders. They help the elders serve. Uh, the deacons like wait on tables, so to speak, like it says in the book of Acts. Um, and uh, Acts 6 says that. 
So that means instead of burdening the apostles with the problems for caring for the widows, the people who, uh, were supposed to approach the officers uh, who held this newly created position in the church. So deacons could baptize new converts in certain situations uh, because we see uh, the deacon Philip baptized the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. Deacons are assistants to the elders, but at the same time, they were able to perform some of the tasks normally reserved in the modern churches to the ministers, uh, which are the, basically the full-time preachers and teachers. So the requirements for both the office of elder and the office of deacon are almost identical. Okay? Uh, anybody know some of the qualifications for the office of elder? Sure, definitely needs to be a Christian. That's has, a good one. Has to have a family that's all the family's Christians? Yes, that's right. So what is, okay, Addie? Uh, he, has to, he has to lead his family well. Lead his family well. Well, in order to have a family, what must the man be? Married. Married, yes. That's a good start. So you must be a married man. You must have a reputation of being a good manager of your own household, and you must be sober. That means you can't be a drunkard, or you can't, you can't be one that is, is prone to weaknesses of the flesh. So 1 Timothy 3.10 says that elders are supposed to serve first as deacons. So I would love for Christ Church to eventually uh, live up to this process. We will one day. We just have to grow and mature enough to get to this point. I think that I think it happens organically, though. I think there are a lot of folks in our church that serve uh, in a in a uh, diaconal function, but their the official title hasn't been put on them that they're deacons. But they do serve in that sense uh, in the process of maybe becoming an elder one day. So First Timothy three ten says this. It says, "And let these also be proved." That that's the the elder candidate. Then let them use the office of a deacon to do that, being found blameless. So be a deacon for a while. If you, you know, think you're called to the ministry, uh, be a deacon for a while. Ask and see if you're qualified to do that, and then give that a go. Well, you need to be married and have a family first before all that starts. But anyway, I digress. First uh, Timothy three eleven also says that not only the officer but the officer's wife also has to be blameless. It, uh, Paul says, even so must their wives be grave. That means uh, sober-minded. Not slanderers. What's a slanderer? Somebody who talks bad about people behind their back or to their face. Uh, Sober, same thing, and faithful in all things. So not only are qualifications for the officer, for the elder candidate, that's also qualifications for the, the wife of the elder. Uh, And there are many ways to divide up the functions of these officers. There are ruling elders, uh, there are preaching and teaching elders, there are bishops to uh, to supervise other elders, Uh, there are, you know, some denominations have committee members who supervise uh, the church's uh, affairs with their denomination. Uh, Between churches, uh, there are also evangelists and teachers. There's a whole list of uh, ministerial functions in the church. And uh, Ephesians 4.11 uh, divvies them up for us. It says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Now, Paul didn't draw up any sharp distinctions among these offices. Uh, I think sometimes these roles overlap with each other. And, And he didn't point to differences of talents held by men in that office. But modern churches tend to segregate these skills into separate offices with a far more rigid hierarchy and a far more detailed hierarchy than even Jesus ever announced. So what we have seen in the institutional church as of late is what we can call a uh, bureaucratization of the church offices. We've made it into a bureaucracy and... uh, has anything, uh, like, what can you tell me of a bureaucracy? Y'all, y'all talk about that stuff in, in uh, humanities? There's a lot of uh, bureauc- bureaucratic things that are going on in the time period you're studying. 
like the federal, or let's take it to modern terms, the uh, Federal Bureau of Investigations, the FBI, mm-hmm. or like what is a bureau? Like bad. Bad. <laughs> That's what I always hear. I was about to, you beat me to it, but what is a bureau? It's like a group that's uh, just a group of middle managers that kind of manage things. Um, and uh, they get a lot of benefits and power through their meddling and management. So I think a lot, there's been a lot of bureaucratization of church offices too. Um, <clears throat> in the Old Testament, uh, it was recognized that the head of the household was the family's priest. And that's still the case. That means the husband and father of that family, in a sense, is uh, that family's priest. He's the one that uh, leads the people to God, right? And it was the father in the Old Testament that led the family in the yearly Passover service, right? Exodus 12, verses 26 and 27 says this, and it says, And it shall come to pass that when your children shall say unto you, What mean you by this service? Like, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this Passover meal? Then you shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses, and the people bowed the head and worshipped. So when the Israelites left Egypt, God established a centralized priesthood. But at the same time, this priesthood never replaced the family's priests, the family priest's duties. It only supplemented those things. That means that the bulk of the family's worship was done in the home. And just before God gave Israel the Ten Commandments, he said in Exodus 19.6, it says, And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And of course, this prophecy was fulfilled by Christ's coming. Peter said, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. And holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what is he saying here? He's essentially saying that every believer is a priest. Every believer is a priest. Now, this doesn't make him a lone priest with no, no one like in authority over him. But it does make him or her a lawful priest when he or she is the head of the household. Okay? Now, church authorities, pastors and elders, uh, they must be men, right? Yeah, they must be men. They are never to be women. Uh, but that's not necessarily the case with the family priesthood. You know, what about widows or single mothers? Who's going to be the priest in their house if they're believers? Well, it would have to be the mom. She would have to be the priestess of the household. And she would have to perform the priestly duties of the home. So wives are priests too. Like, let's say you're, you know, you're married and you're, you're a woman and your husband's alive. Well, it doesn't mean you're not a priest. Um, you're still doing a lot of the priestly duties of the home. You're not the high priest of the home, but you're still a priest. And you are, you know, you're especially acting as a priest as, you know, you you literally, if you have children, you're literally going to be waiting on tables. You're literally going to be serving meals. Uh, You're literally going to serve the home. And in that role, you know, the wife becomes an assistant to the elder in the home. Now, on the question of female officers in the church. So for those who believe in the testimony of Scripture... There is no question on this. Women cannot be officers in the church. They can't be pastors. They can't be preachers. They can't be elders. They can't be evangelists. They can't have that official office. No way. And the reason I'm I'm making a big point about this is because that's not what many in the church in America believe these days. And they refuse to acknowledge this teaching. They refuse to submit this teaching. And if they do that, it's plain to see they simply do not believe in the Bible. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Yeah. The, the Bible and the Bible's teaching on this subject uh, can serve as a means of testing a church's commitment to the Bible. You want to know if a church is a good church? This is one way to test it. You know, can women hold office in the church? If the answer is yes, 
then you do not have a very high commitment on Scripture. That is not a church you should join. You know, if but if they do, well, that's one means of of saying, okay, well, there may be something here. They may be a decent church, right? Because the reason I say this, because Paul wrote this really clearly. He wrote this plainly. This isn't something that you have to deduce out of the pages of Scripture. Uh, No, it's not difficult to understand. He wrote this. He said, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in transgression. Does that sound unclear to us? No. No. First no. Uh, Corinthians 14, he says, Let your women keep silent in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for, is it a sh- for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. So there you go. That's clear as day. So churches that ordain women to positions of authority uh, and ordain them as ministers of the gospel, they are in blatant rebellion to God. They really are. They're in blatant rebellion against him because that's what the Bible teaches. Okay? Crystal clear. Right? Any questions about that? Does that make the woman less valuable than the man? No. Does that make her role less important than the man? No, it does not. Somebody's got to be in charge. And that's just how God ordained it. Yes, sir? Sunday school is a bit of a different matter uh, because uh, Paul is essentially saying here, let me look at the scripture again. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man. Here's a question when it comes to Sunday school. Is it a, first of all, is it an adult Sunday school class? And are men present in the class? If there are men present in the class and it's an adult Sunday school, that a woman should not be teaching it. Because essentially this woman is usurping authority over the man. She's in a teaching position yeah, over him. She's asking questions. Oh, asking questions. Oh, as a, uh, like, well, I mean, if, yeah, that, I think that's fine. Um, you know, it, it depends on exactly the situation. Does she have a husband to ask at home? That's one question. Um, if she doesn't, then, you know, where else is she going to find answers to her questions but by asking? I thought you meant more women teaching Sunday school. Uh, women teaching like a children's Sunday school class is, is okay because there aren't any men around. She's not usurping authority over a man. There's no man around. There's just children. So it's a little bit different. Um, <clears throat> by and large, women shouldn't be asking uh, questions with a, um, from, a, like a, um, from, from a posture of like trying to get answers to the question to help her family while her husband's just sitting right there passive like a bump on a log, not being eager to learn anything. That's not how it should be. So I think, I think that's what Paul is warning against. Uh, I don't think it's like, you know, let, let the woman never speak in church. Some churches believe that. Uh, but I don't think that's really the main uh, point of what Paul is teaching here. Basically, he's fussing at the Corinthian church for, you know, for women in general usurping the role of men. And it becomes a, like a very matriarchal church. Like women are just kind of running the show. That's who he's fussing at. <coughs> so, yeah. So I don't think that totally uh, negates a, a woman asking questions in, in, a, in a Sunday school class. So, all right. Any other questions? That makes sense? Okay. All right. Um, so let's talk about the church as a community. The church is a community. It's a community that's basically in communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's, I would describe the church as the family of God. It's God's family with all the fellowship and the commitment of a family. And it's also a family with all of the problems of a family and the disagreements of a family and the fights of a family. And so the institutional church is the assembly of the faithful who meets each and every week on a day that we unfortunately call Sunday. I do not like the word Sunday. 
And the reason I say that is because the word Sunday is an ancient holdover from the Roman calendar, the pagan calendar. Also, all the days of the week are like Norse and pagan names. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, that's all. What would you like them to be? I don't know, Christianized, Christian names. Like I thought we, didn't we, talk, day, we talked about this last year. Yeah, mm-hmm. like the Lord's Day. Sunday's called the Lord's Day. I don't know. Maybe one day when, when uh, you know, when the country's... Yeah, exactly. Just like Genesis. I'm fine with that. But anyway, yeah, so uh, Christmas Day... First day. Second death. Third death. Yeah. There you go. Paul's day. Peter's day. Martin Luther's day. John's day. Yeah. Well, anyway, now I'm really digressing. Okay, so when is the when does this church meet? What day of the week? The Lord's Day. Sunday. We'll say it. Sunday. Fine. I know. So the church is a true community. It's a community that's based on shared goals, shared beliefs, shared burdens, shared blessings. Jesus told his disciples, he said, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's John fifteen twelve. Uh, again, he says this, These things I command you, that you love one another. That's also John fifteen seventeen. And John wrote in 1 John three sixteen. Hereby perceive we the love of God. This is how you know the love of God. Because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Who's the brethren? It's the church. It's the community. And uh, 1 Peter one twenty two says, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. That's a mark of knowing that we are Christians, that we love one another in the church. It says, he that loveth not his brother abideth in death. So if you hate your brother, your brother in Christ, and I guess your blood brother too, uh, you may be abiding in death. Your soul may be in danger. Peter wrote, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Okay, so... What, is, what type of emotion, not emotion, that's a bad way to say it, but what type of uh, attitude should the church be marked by? Joy. Huh? Joy. Joy, but based on these few scriptures I just said. Huh? Love, yeah, that's the, word, that's the verb that's continuously being used here. Love. No, not the emotion. I see I slip. See, my, my, uh, my humanism's coming out. I have, to, I have to weed all that out. So the church is to be an institution of loving people who cooperate with each other. So this is a mature love. So the, the love that we give one another in the body of Christ is a mature love that's given and received by, ideally, stable people, uh, not by wildly emotional children. So, I love you or I hate you. None of that. Uh, Ephesians 4 says this. This is Ephesians 4, uh, starting in verse 14 to verse 16. It's kind of a lengthy passage, so, so listen up. It says, That we henceforth be no more children. Stop being children. Tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, by cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up unto him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies, according to the effectual working of the measure of every part, make increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Now, that's a lengthy sentence, but it says a lot here. It says that the church is Christ's body. This is where we get the idea that... The church is the body of Christ, right here from this passage. Uh, The church is the body of Christ, and Christ is the head. And the church is to be edified through sound teaching. What does it mean to edify or be edified? Anybody know? Sort of, yeah. Being edified is like an outworking of being taught. When you edify someone, what are you doing with them? 
You're building them up. Yeah, you're building them up. You're encouraging them. You are uh, making them better in a sense. And so, what on earth? Shira? Anyway. Uh, so the church. Wow. No. Is there a way to like just turn it on silent? Yeah, I just turned my Wi-Fi off. Oh, okay. Well, that'll work too. It doesn't say you don't have to get Okay, anyway, so the church is to be edified through sound teaching. It's not to be tossed to and fro by every wind of new doctrine that comes along. So it's Jesus who holds his body together through sound doctrine and through love for one another. And, and both of these things are absolutely crucial to the survival of the institutional church. Love and sound teaching and edification. But sadly, in practice, churches seem to either they specialize in either one or the other. So it's either they either emphasize sound doctrine and uh, they act like a bunch of frozen chosen people and they have uh, uh, no love for one another or uh, they have lots of love and no sense at all. They're just, you know, we love each other. And there's, there's no hierarchy. There's no structure. There's no sound teaching. Love usually is some sort of feeling or an emotion that we, we feel through some ecstatic experience or something. A lot of churches are either one or the other. And unfortunate, it's unfortunate that's usually a choice between being mature and stable with the evidence of love for one another or mutual love and affection, but without the, the sound biblical doctrine. But we are called to have what? Both of those things. Sound doctrine and we're called to uh, love one another. Yeah, not that love. Love, like manly love. Not love. See, it already sounds feminine. It already sounds soft. No. Except for ladies. You can say it that way. So love involves a strong personal commitment. That's the essence of what uh, love is. It's a personal commitment. Um, It's not a feeling that you have. It's not a feeling of euphoria that you may have towards another person or people. No. Love is commitment. So we read in the Bible that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So what does that mean when you love money? That means you're, grasp- you're grasping at money. You're clinging to money. Yes, thank you for the visual. Yes, you're clinging to the money. So it's an unwillingness to let go of the money. It's a, it's a systematic dedication of your life to something. So that's a good description of love. And I think it applies to human relationships too. Uh, but I've given this definition of love to you without an object. Okay, We can have the love of money. Is the love of money good or bad? bad. That's bad. Well, uh, good in some sense. Well, it, it, what if, what if love, the love of money trumps every other love that you have? That's bad, yeah. Right. That's a commitment to money. That's what love is. But I've given you the idea of love without having an object. That means love has to be... Love in itself, uh, you know, can be good or bad. It depends on what the object is. You know, love is a transitive verb. You know what a transitive verb is? It's a verb that has a direct object, right? So, So we have to ask ourselves, we must have love, but love's in terms of what? What is its object? Well, according to Jesus, oh, we are to love our fellow Christians. We are to have that type of commitment that we would have to, you know, the love of money, not wanting to let it go, or, or of anything that we, that we love. Like, we don't want to, we have to love each other so much that we are not willing to let each other go whenever persecution or hard times, or even in good times, we're committed to each other. That's what Christian love is. Um, <clears throat> So what are we to love in our fellow Christians? You know, some people are easier to love than others. So, but generally speaking, why are you looking at him? <laughs> right? So what are we to love in our fellow Christians? What are the standards of love? And how are we to act towards other Christians? What do y'all think? According to God's law. According to, sure, according to God's law. So you're not really loving anything in the other person. You're just loving according to an outside standard. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. We're supposed to love our enemies, and like you wouldn't love them for anything they did. Well, you probably wouldn't. Uh, right. So it's 
you, a love just he did like he says if you love me keep my commandments mm-hmm. so right just keep his commandments toward other people yeah very good yeah. Jackson uh, if you actually love somebody you have to help them do stuff and correct them when they're wrong and sin yeah yeah because you're committed to them you're committed to their well being yeah you want to do those things exactly very good Lucas. Yeah, absolutely. Even if that means never talking to them again. Isn't that strange? What if someone is in total, deep, unrepentant sin? And let's say they're, um, you know, they, they, they've been a, a person, like we've, done, we've basically followed Matthew 18 in dealing with a person who is in unrepentant sin. You know, we've gone to them personally and said, hey, look, you, you really got to stop doing this. Make it real easy. You got to stop doing this. Um, and then they refuse to listen to you. Then, you know, you take a couple of other people with you to really try to persuade them in order to restore them, in order to, to get them to repent and restore them to fellowship. But they still don't listen. And then eventually we take it to the whole church, and they still don't want to listen. So they have to be excommunicated. Y'all know what that means, to be excommunicated? Put out of the church. And essentially when they're put out of the church, you know, you treat them as a Gentile. Uh, you don't even eat with this person. You don't even talk to this person. Um, that's what the Bible commands us to do. Um, does that mean we don't love them anymore? No. No, the reason we're not eating with them, the reason we are intentionally keeping ourselves away from them is to hopefully, if they know the Lord, that they'll, this isolation will cause them to be restored and be repented. Because as soon, you know, we're, we have forgiveness and we have uh, them coming back into fellowship, like gift-wrapped at our door, ready to go. All you have to do is come to the door and take the gift. And you're back in fellowship. All you have to do is repent of that sin and confess your sins before God and whoever you offended, and you're restored to fellowship. And um, that's the whole meaning behind you know uh, what Jesus is saying when you put them out of the church. Like you, you don't do it because you hate them. You do it because you love them and you want them to be restored back into fellowship. Um, <clears throat> Because sometimes the, the, the nicest and the uh, most kind thing you can do for somebody is to give them some tough love. You know, what if we keep, what if this person stays in unrepentant sin and we don't put them out of the church? What could happen? They could spread that Absolutely. The body of Christ would no longer be pure, it would no longer be clean and spotless. Yeah, there's a cancer that's, that will eventually kill the whole church if left unchecked. So we have to eradicate that, but at the same time, the Lord can do miracles and, and restore this person and bring them back to us. So even not talking to them and uh, treating them as a stranger is an act of love towards them. <clears throat> uh, it says this uh, in Romans 13.10, it says, Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the, f- the fulfilling of the law. Very good. Love is lawful. So love takes note of God's standards of righteousness, and he seeks to apply those standards in every human situation. So men do not lie about their fellow Christians, or, or they don't turn them away empty-handed when a crisis arrives. Love is the visible manifestation of the law in action. It, it's an emotional clinging to like-minded followers of Christ. But it's also a clinging in terms of God's revealed law. Now, love isn't simply an unguided and distinctionless emotional commitment. It's not that. No, it's a systematic, thought-out commitment to the welfare of others in terms of God's law. Now, love is not an excuse to be without the law. Okay? Now, by linking up the love of God and the law of God, we can better understand the cross. Because that's, uh, you know, God's love to the whole world was manifested in the same event as his uh, vengeance and judgment against lawbreaking. Right? God demonstrated his love towards us by uh, putting Christ on the cross and at the same time uh, showing us his justice and having mankind pay because of the sins uh, that they have committed through Christ, right? So God executes his judgment, and he does it without respect of persons. Check this out. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, 
a, a mighty and a terrible God, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow, and loveth the stranger, in giving him food and raiment. Love ye therefore the stranger, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. So, since strangers were foreigners to God's covenant, they were basically uncircumcised people dwelling in the land. So God's judgment in history, was, was it for them or against them? Against. against, that's right. Nevertheless, here in Deuteronomy, the people were told to love them. How are they to do that? Obey God's law toward them. Right, exactly. Uh, what does loving them really mean? Well, it meant that the Israelites were to deal honestly with the strangers, giving them full protection of the law of God in the land. Right. So God, who is sovereign over all the world, he was then too, he requires every man to obey his commands. And, and this right here is the biblical doctrine of love. It's this, to give out honest judgment and to bring the rule of God's law over all men. And that includes the stranger. So love is actually, it doesn't negate the law. Love is the fulfilling of the law. And this is why the cross is the highest symbol of both God's love and God's justice. Because Jesus died on the cross to satisfy God's justice. And this sacrifice shows us uh, God's amazing love for us, his people. Okay? Um, now, I was talking about the love of money earlier uh, and brotherly love. Obviously, uh, brotherly love and uh, the love of money are different things, right? So, love of money is, is self-oriented. Yeah, it's, it's the service of our own lusts. Brotherly love isn't self-serving. It's what? Others serving. It's, brother, it's serving of your brother or your sister. Um, it's oriented toward the welfare of other people. And uh, just like Christ's love as he died for his friends. Now, um, can, a man, uh, can a man love money? Uh, can he be permitted to love money? Lucas answered this question earlier. Sure. Uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing to, to love money. Um, but there's a right way to do it. If money to him is simply a sign of his, how good he is at selling to customers what they want at prices that are, you know, more competitive than the other guys, uh, then that's fine. That's, that's good, right? Because if, you, if you're a good salesman and you sell uh, to customers what they want, you sell honestly, and you sell at a, at a more competitive rate than everybody else is, who's going to make more money, you or your competitors? You are, right? So, and therefore, your bank account is going to reflect that. That's good. That doesn't have to be evil, Right? If men think of money as a kind of indicator of, of customer satisfaction, then the money is legitimate. You know, unless you're selling drugs, and that's a problem. But, you know, uh, if you're making an honest living, uh, then the quest for money is, is a good quest. But money that is sought for its own sake, uh, not even taking into account how much the damage uh, this, this quest for money brings, you know, like, you know, selling pornography, is that a great way to make money? No, it is not. Uh, cheating the poor. No, not a great way to make money. Oh, it's not? Huh, no, it is not. I have a feeling you know that already. <laughs> Stop it, Nicholas. No, I'm joking. Uh, yeah, so those aren't good ways to make money. Those aren't proper ways to make money. They're not lawful. That's not, uh, that's not exhibiting uh, the law of love by doing that. Okay, <clears throat> so... It's the orientation of a man's activities that is important in defining good love from bad love. Again, and the only way we can know uh, what you know, uh, the orientation, whether it's good or bad, is by measuring it by the standards of God's law. So it's God's law that allows us to test the kind of love that's dwelling in our hearts. So <clears throat> getting back to the church and love, uh, the healthy church is made up of many different kinds of people. Right? So Paul described the church in terms of what illustration does he use to describe the church? I said it earlier. The body. The body, right. So, you know, what are the main parts of the body? The head, the hands, eyes, arms, legs. You know, other, there's other parts too, but they're all under the direction of what? The head. Right. And who is the head of the church? 
Jesus, that's right. So what does that mean? Can, can a hand do what a nose does? No. no, that would be really silly. Could a foot do what an elbow does? No. So what does that mean with the body? There is a division of labor. Yeah. Just like with our bodies, there's a division of labor. Uh, in the church, there is a division of labor. That's a sign of a healthy church. You know, if everybody in the church was a foot, that would be a really weird-looking church, right? Or if everybody was a head. Everyone's a carpenter. Everyone's a pastor. Everyone's a pastor. That's right. So whose turn is it to preach? Yeah. You have to wear, like, all bouncing like heads in the, um, the cube. Or just, like, you would just like be sitting there. Infinite. Thus saith the Lord, you know. Infinite backup It wouldn't do anything. Do what? Infinite backup pastors. Oh, my goodness. That would be, that would be awful. It's like a little kid. My mommy. <laughs> so anyway, yes. Yeah, so the division of labor is basic to any functioning church. That's a good thing. Different people have different skills. God has gifted people with different things to, that they can offer. So the church needs all sorts of people if it's going to be a functioning body. Uh, the church is collective, and it's responsible f- before God for its actions collectively. So blessings come to individuals because of their membership in the collective, and curses do too. And, and God is both one and many, so we are also both one and many as members of the body of Christ. This is why God wants a comprehensive church, uh, a church that's able to bring a sense of meaningful community to isolated and lonely people. Okay, So men and women, have always uh, they always serve something higher than themselves. That's what we should be doing. So something that's going to outlast their brief little lives. <laughs> uh, they should serve a cause that's permanent and something that is victorious, that's actually going to win. Uh, and to me, the church should be that thing, that people should be uh, serving, always serving the church, always serving brothers and sisters uh, in Christ. Right? Right. So... <clears throat> uh, I have a couple more minutes here. I'd like to talk a little bit more about this. We'll have to split this talk um, through a couple of lessons. Uh, The criteria for leadership in the church is service in the church. Um, Luke 22, 26 says this, But he that is greatest among you, let let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. So the criterion for leadership in the church is service. It's not preaching well. It's not having the most charisma. It's not, you know, preacher sneakers. It's none of that stuff. No, that's not the criterion for leadership in the church. It's service. It's always being, like, other-oriented. It's serving people even when you don't get notoriety for it and you don't get uh, you know, pats on the back for it. That's service. That's the criteria for leadership. That's the test for leadership because Jesus was a suffering servant and his suffering service was instrumental in establishing uh, his victory over everything. That's why he's king now is because he suffered as a servant. You know, at the time, we all know Jesus now, but was he in the limelight while he was here on earth? No. If he was, he was hated by everybody. It was bad limelight, bad press. But he gained total power and now sits at the right hand of the Father precisely because he went and willingly served served us and served the Lord, served God. Okay? So uh, does the church have welfare functions? Does the church do welfare? Uh, Kind of, sure. The the church can. It's not par- it's not the primary mean- primary means of welfare, but it is one. If a church member's like having a hard time in their life and they need some money for something, then yeah, we give them some. Yeah, well, I talked a few weeks back. Who should they be asking first for the money if they need it? The fa- their other family members, if they have it, right? Because it's the other family members who probably know best what they really need. And you know, if if a dad has a drinking problem and they ran out of money because he's using all his money on booze, then you know. Uh, the government sure definitely shouldn't be the institution to give them money, right? Because they don't they don't know about his drinking problem. They just know he doesn't have money, 
right? Same thing with the church. The church may not know that, not necessarily with the drinking thing, but uh, the church may not necessarily know all of the details of this family's issues, but other family members do. So they're the primary ones. But the church does have welfare functions too. Uh, who does the church have uh, the responsibility to care for if they don't have family? Widows and orphans. Widows and orphans and the elderly, yeah. Uh, so it has charge of caring for those members that face a crisis. Uh, but of course, like we said a few weeks ago, charity and welfare isn't to be lawless and without some discrimination. We have to use some discrimination whenever we decide who to give charity to uh, in our families and in the church. Second uh, Thessalonians 3.10 says this, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So, so if a hungry family is in our church um, and they don't have enough to eat and uh, the dad once again has his drinking problem and that prevents him from keeping a job, what does the church do? Offer him a job? Well, if, Maybe. if there is one... If yeah, all of those certain things, we just shouldn't just write him a check for the groceries. Yeah, no, because if he's not willing to work, now granted he needs to deal with this alcohol issue uh, and and work through that and repent of that, but he also needs to repent of the other sins that this alcoholism brought, or maybe the maybe the sloth brought the alcoholism. I don't know. It depends on yeah. one could bring the other, but there's a there's apparently a, the sin of sloth and the sin of laziness here. Uh, and he's abdicating his responsibilities. And so if that's the case, then let him not eat, right? What about the rest of the family? Well, it's not the kid's fault, so maybe other family members can feed the kids. I don't know. They, these are all specific situations that we can't just put, you know, just this overall answer to. But at the same time, we sh- I'm explaining that we shouldn't just give, we shouldn't just write checks just because people ask for things. We need to see, do you really need this? What's going on in your life? Because we, we have to steward this money properly uh, because we're accountable to God for it, okay? And so <clears throat> anyway, yeah, so we have to uh, – what standard do we use to uh, measure who or if we give? Uh, the Bible. Bible, God's law. It it's usually always goes to those answers. Yeah, so very good because uh, we can't endorse laziness. And sloth. The family can't, the church can't, the state can't as well.